Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. I am on my way to seven figures myself while prioritizing those important things and sharing the insights that I'm learning along the way, along with the guests that are coming on along the show. So before we dive into today, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out to BWC Milwaukee, who said, you'll want to hear more. I love the way Brandon delivers on his message of success and so much more than earning money real success and fulfillment is also about strong relationships time with your loved ones great health and happiness brandon has developed an incredible network with some ultra successful entrepreneurs and what a treat we get to hear their stories and advice the interviews are authentic and thought-provoking and full of inspiration i can't wait to hear more so thank you so much bwc milwaukee for leaving that review and if you're listening to my voice right now and you haven't left a review, do it. <laughs> Pretty please do it. Not only does it make my day, but it also helps more people to find the show. And I will also potentially give you a pre-show listener shout out in a future episode. But without further ado, today's guest is Justin Chen. Justin Chen is a co-founder of PickFu and serial entrepreneur of 15 years. So for some background on PickFu, PickFu is the fastest and simplest way to receive customer feedback. Just write a question, provide two options, and the audience will get back to you in 15 minutes or less with about 50 or more respondents giving you feedback on what option is the best. So think if you have two different book titles that you're working on or two different book covers, or if you're an Amazon seller and you're trying to figure out what thing looks best before you list it, that is what PickFu is uh, really, really good at. So it's used by thousands of companies, including self-published authors, FBA sellers, CPG companies, and some of the largest mobile game companies, startups, and marketing agencies. And Justin, who we're talking to today, has a passion for creating automated technology solutions that solve problems that people didn't even know existed and is a firm believer in remote work and work-life balance. He breaks up his workday by shuttling his two kids between school and all their various activities through Los Angeles traffic. So three things that you can learn today. Number one, what being a colorblind engineer has to do with how he started this company. Number two, how to ask for feedback. And this seems very elementary, but if you ask for feedback the wrong way, you will get the wrong answer. So we dive into a really interesting conversation about how to ask for feedback appropriately and number three, how Justin thinks about work-life balance and managing his team of remote workers. We dive into that and so much more in this conversation. So please enjoy this convo with Justin Chen. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Justin, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brandon. Awesome. Well, first of all, I want to publicly thank Bob Regneris, who was responsible for introducing us. So in case Bob is listening, really appreciate that. And it's funny because for those that are listening, Bob's episode should have aired before. So, you know, Bob has this company called Feed Stories. He has these incredible videos that he shoots with his clients. And so I was watching Justin's video that Bob did. And and something that really stuck out to me and where I kind of want to start with this interview, Justin, was the story about how you got started with PickFu. And, and, and I love it when entrepreneurs create something that was out of necessity and something that I saw in the story that you're an engineer and you're colorblind (laughs) and it kind of has, so can you explain to our audience, what does being an engineer and being colorblind have to do with how you started your company PickFu? 
Yeah, sure. So my co-founder, John, and I were running a different company called Menuism, and we were working on a redesign for that. So, um, you know, we we're going through redesign layouts and we we couldn't decide on uh, on which one we wanted to go with. So we decided to build a tool called PicFu to crowdsource the decision. And so essentially what PicFu is, is uh, it's a way to run really simple polls where you ask a question, give a couple options, like two design layouts. And it asks the crowd to like vote on which one they like and give an explanation why. And so we used it to immediately uh, decide on which design to go with for menuism. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of how PicFu started. And and that was years ago. Uh, but it's it's grown to, to be a bigger business than the uh, the project that we were previously working on. And uh, it's really helpful for me, especially as a, as a, as a colorblind engineer, um, <laughs> you know, whatever. No one respects my <laughs> my design decisions, but uh, we can we can outsource <laughs> it and uh, get an objective uh, opinion on it. So, you say you used PicFu to pick the name and also to help you with with, yes. with menuism. Actually, we didn't get to the you picking the name there, but you said you used it. So you just had this built already. You had a community of people that were already able to help. Can you just explain a little bit more about sure. specifically like the 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 experience that people have when they're using PicFu so they can get a better idea of what yeah. what you mean when you said you used it to pick the idea. Yeah, so we uh, we built that as a side project. I mean, we're we're both in entrepreneurs and uh, always working on different things, and so um, when this need came up, we we built this uh, like proof of concept, essentially like a, a very lean version of it. And what we did is we tapped into existing panels uh, panel sources. So there's a lot of uh, panels out there where people are completing surveys and doing all those kinds of things. And so uh, we're not hiring people directly to pick food, but we are contracting mm. out um, these surveys. Uh, so to speak, to other companies. And so we were able to build the, uh, the MVP very quickly and um, you know, use, use that first version to uh, answer our question about the design for menuism. Got it. Okay. So the MVP, yeah. so meant you were working on PicFu while you were at Menuism, just a side project. And then you yeah. kind of tapped into these third party. And that's how yeah. you were able to kind of build up the review side of things. So how very did you, so how did you end up when, what was the day like when you realized that you were going to jump full time from your previous gig to menuism? Was there like, because I'm assuming if it was just a side project, it was like, okay, this thing is kind of cool. But like, what was there a day when you're like, oh my gosh, this is actually the thing we should be working on instead? Yeah. So I guess like going back uh, to, to more origin stories. So so my partner, John and I started back in 2006. Um, so I think it's our 15 year anniversary next weekend. It was Congratulations. MLK weekend. <laughs> yeah, MLK weekend. Uh, I was at HP and he was at Microsoft. So, you know, when we graduated college, we we um, we started right when everything tanked and, you know, all the start dot com uh, uh, busted. So we went to our big corporate jobs. So I went to HP, went to Microsoft um, and we were there for a few years. But uh, we always had the entrepreneurial itch to do something. Uh, so we met up uh, in Seattle where my partner was. And on this long weekend, we just decided, all right, we're, we're going to do it. We're, we brainstormed all these ideas and we had this huge whiteboard of, you know, trying to subjectively score, um, you know, <laughs> like, should we start a bar? Should we open a restaurant? Should we do a <laughs> website? Like it's literally everything was on the table. Sure. And uh, by the end of the weekend, we decided on this uh, uh, restaurant menu aggregator kind of site. And that's what we we started, uh, and it was called menuism. And so we, we gave notice, I think it was like the following Tuesday. We just, we said, we're not going to do this part-time thing because it's not going to happen. Like we're just going to go all in and we, uh, immediately quit and just started. Um, so 
that's kind of how we started the the journey. And we were working on menuism for a number of years before we started PicFu. And PicFu was a side project that we, you know, that we just used internally. We threw it out to the community on on Hacker News just for them to to use as well. Um, but for for most of those years, we were working on menuism full time, and it's still it's still running on its own right now. So can you get, uh, so I know we're kind of jumping back and forth between sure. PicFu yeah. and menuism. So, so menuism, can you just explain what that was then? That was your first venture working yep. with John was, is your co-founder's name. Yeah. So tell so, so you're, you're, you're sitting there, you're on the whiteboard. You're like, should we do restaurants? Yeah. Then how did you end up picking this menuism concept? And I yeah. also would love you to dive into the name of menuism. Cause I think there's some, some meaning behind that. <laughs> yeah, well. Sure. Um, the idea came to my partner when he, we were we were ordering food. He had a, this drawer full of restaurant menus, and at the time in 2006, like there wasn't there wasn't a ton of online uh, menu data, and so we were just thinking, well, we should be able to have a better digital access to restaurant menus. We should be able to have um, access to ratings of dishes, um, in addition to to reviews. And so um, we did start with the goal of trying to digitize menus. And so that's that's kind of where menuism came as kind of like enlightenment, kind of like a Buddhism thing, but around strictly restaurant menus. <laughs> and so that that was the vision at the time. Um, we philosophically had a, um, a self-funded approach to things like we did not want to raise venture capital. Uh, part of the goal for our entrepreneurial journey was to learn. It was to grow. Right. We mm. we figured if we failed in a year or two, it was, you know, real life MBA. And so whatever right. costs incurred, like it was learning anyway. So um, we didn't feel the urge to to go raise money and we didn't want to have to own up to another another boss. Like we were leaving corporate so that we didn't have to own up to anyone. <laughs> right. so, so why would we trade that for someone else? So um, throughout this whole journey, we've we've philosophically never wanted to raise money. And, and I think we're, we're still on board with that. Um, so that's that's kind of where menuism came from. We uh, we took the self-funded approach. It was a very difficult space to be self-funded in. I mean, we're going against like the city searches and the Yelps and the Urban Smoons and um, mm-hmm. all these big guys that um, you know did really well for themselves. Uh, but we were able to carve out our own niche of traffic. Um, and we pivoted a few times to instead of just trying to digitize, like we started partnering, we started uh, crowdsourcing people, like adding adding dishes and menus and everything uh, into the system. And yeah, like we carved out our own niche of uh, Google organic traffic, uh, which it still continues to have. And um, yeah, we were able to build a a pretty good business on top of it. And um, but we always wanted a portfolio of businesses. And that's kind of where PicFu came in. We built some other side businesses along the way and, you know, just trying to build up a little um, (laughs) our own little empire there. Yeah. So from my research, I saw that you built menuism up to 2.5 million visitors per month. You can correct me yeah. if I'm if I'm wrong on that. So you, right. I mean, you had a decent amount of traffic going there. What? How were you monetizing menuism? What was the revenue model behind that? Yeah, it was um, it was all ad revenue, and that was kind of the heyday of of ads. And it was a very interesting process. I mean, we we learned how to optimize our ad stack. Uh, we were doing kind of all the different uh, ad approaches. Um, I think during that time, Groupon was also hot for a few years, and so they were. They were paying a lot per email and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's all ad based. Uh, a lot of Google ads, both display and click, um, and um, affiliate as well. So uh, things like online ordering and uh, reservations, all that kind of stuff. Got it. Okay. Yeah. 
Thank you for clarifying that. I, I also wanted to jump back on something. And so, I mean, we have entrepreneurs that are listening to this, some that are, you know, fully fledged entrepreneurs, some that are still planning on jumping out. And one of the comments that you had made is that you just decided to go full out from corporate straight yeah. into <laughs> the job. So looking back on it, hindsight, like was the, was the jump worth it? Or would you have transitioned a little bit better? Or, you know, for somebody that's listening that might be in a corporate job and is considering doing this kind of what, how, what was going through your head and what you explained to them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's a couple couple things. I, I don't know if we would do it differently. I, I think if we had planned it a little bit better, it might have gone a little bit smoother. The the di- most difficult part was that we had both bought uh, houses right before that. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we were in our stable corporate job. I, I, I was in a condo in Chicago. My my partner had bought a house in um, in uh, Washington. And so our biggest expense was actually just mortgage, just leaking right. out of our bank accounts. And so, um, you know, you can cut your living expenses all you want, but if you're paying the mortgage out of your savings, it's, it's pretty painful. Sure, um, sure. Part of the reason we did the uh, the full jump was, you know, we had been trying to work on stuff along the way, and, and we were in two different cities. So it's very difficult to make progress on anything after your full-time job and then trying to remotely do stuff on the side together. Um, and we just weren't making any traction. And so... In our particular scenario, like we felt like we just had to go 100 percent to to give the to give the effort that it deserved, and uh, if we spent a year doing it part time, it just didn't seem like it was a genuine effort. So, sure. I think everyone needs to evaluate it themselves to see if like if they're able to make progress like at night or or on the weekends, and that's great. Like that's obviously a way to de-risk it, but I think for us, like we just had to give it mentally 100 percent. Yeah, I love that. And and I think one of the exercises that's always helped me to make those kind of crazy decisions, it's actually Tim Ferriss has got a TED talk on fear setting. And mm. lots of the times when you're making like a big jump, if you play it up in your mind is like, oh, we're going to be homeless. We're going to be out on the street, like, you know, all this crazy, just surviving on ramen. But it's usually it's because you're going through those loops in your head over and over and over again without ever actually addressing them and realizing what the actual reality would be if you went out and executed it. Yeah. And so, you know, for anybody listening right now, I think that's a, that's a cool exercise. If you're considering jumping, it's like, okay, what is the worst case scenario? What could I potentially do to recover from that. And then usually you realize that making the jump is actually like a decent option. So is that, it, 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 did you go through like a similar thought process or was it more of just like, just understanding the fact that no, you weren't yeah. going to make enough traction you just, you just decided to go. Yeah, it was definitely that thought process because we, you know, we were both doing well at our jobs and we knew that if we uh, wanted to get rehired in a year or two, like we could, we could come back right. to our jobs. Um, we also knew that we could do consulting and we, we actually did end up doing some consulting. I think, uh, I forgot when it was, maybe in end of 2000, you know, cash flow was a little bit low, like revenue for many of them hadn't totally picked up yet. So we were doing just some consulting on the side to, to pay the bills. Um, and so there's always ways to, to make it up. And, and it, we felt pretty confident that there was always a backup plan. Um, yeah. if it failed within a year or two. And did you, did you have, was there a family in the picture at this time? Or was it just two single dudes that were off and doing this thing? Yeah, it was, it was two single dudes. I, I, I had a girlfriend at the time, but, um, you know, she was supportive and, um, no dependencies yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just wanted to ask because sometimes it's always good to have those conversations about, you know, discussing the, those kinds of jumps when you're having a significant other. But if that wasn't the case, then we don't, we don't have to go there. So, um, so, so, so let's, let's go back to your at menuism, PicFu, you're starting to see some traction for it, or I, I guess let's walk back to the early days of PicFu. So you, you, you started launching it. It was in the starter community. When did yeah. you realize that this was something that was actually had legs to it and was, was something that was relevant? Yeah, I mean, so we we wrote the first code for PicFu around 2008. So it's actually been around a really long time. 
Um, you can still find posts on Hacker News about it. Uh, but we we probably didn't realize it was uh, had its own legs probably five years ago, maybe like pretty recently. Really? OK. Started, uh, you know, we really just left it there for a really long time. And, you know, every now and then we would update things just as, as we needed. But uh, it started picking up traction on its own when, um, you know, the whole lean startup movement was was picking up steam and people were just doing more idea validation and and uh, trying to get quantitative data about uh, the decisions that they're making. And so it was picking up steam on its own. And uh, we were we found uh, some book um, self-publishing authors were, were using it to test their book titles and book covers. And so then it like it really clicked in our head like, oh, this, this is interesting, right? It, there's there's applications to very specific industries. Mm. Before it was kind of hard to market because it's a very general purpose tool. It's like, hey, get feedback on something. Like, okay, right. well, what should I do with it, right? So right. I think once we started changing the conversation to like, okay, you're an author, you want to get t- feedback on your titles, just like Tim Ferriss did for Four Hour Workweek. He talked about how- I was just how, gonna bring that up. <laughs> how he used, I think it was AdWords, he ran ads against different titles and it was the Four Hour Workweek, which was not the one he was gonna go with that right. one. And so I think that story alone was was uh, helped the authors crystallize that they should be getting data for their titles and their and their covers. And- I think for authors that have publishers, they they can actually they can lean on their you know the public the the editors and all those uh, the expertise to get that feedback. But I think for self publishing authors, they're kind of on their own, so they do want this extra reassurance about getting data around titles and covers. Yeah, especially it's like you know Tim Ferriss talks about in Four Hour Workweek is like running. I think it was Google Ads was his recommendation at the time, yeah. or like Facebook Ads now. And it's like for most indie authors that are self publishing, it's like that's way too big of a barrier to entry to understand. Yep. Even the Facebook data are setting it up the platform, and so from my understanding, PicPu is kind of it's pretty self explanatory. It's just like okay, A B, put it up there and see what yep, happens. That's so it, yeah, <laughs> awesome. So so we're. So, so you start to realize that authors are finding a use in this. So did you kind of just like double down and you started marketing towards that niche and then, and then you expect it, you ended up finding more use cases as time went on or how did that progress into what it is today as far as all these use cases that you serve now? Yeah, 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 for sure. So for a couple of years, we were really doubling down on authors. We were um, just, you know, getting uh, relationships with other book marketing consultants and uh, bloggers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we we found a really good uh, community there. We started seeing a lot of game companies using us. So we have actually some of the largest mobile game companies now using us to test things like app icons and app store screenshots. And and even earlier in the process, they're using it to test like their characters and their and their mm. game names and all that kind of stuff. So it's really really awesome to see. Um, so that was kind of like the next segment that came along uh, organically. And so we started marketing into that. Um, and most recently, e-commerce. Like e-commerce, obviously, is is booming now. It's huge. People selling on Amazon, and that's our biggest segment now. Is people uh, Amazon people selling on Amazon or Walmart or whatever it is, and testing their product concepts really early. So you know, before they finalize their their purchases from their manufacturer, like, do you want the one with the handle, without the handle? Should it be blue? Should it be green? Or whatever it is. Uh, you know, you're going to spend $50,000 or whatever it is on on inventory. You want to make sure right. that people are going to buy it. Um, you also want to make sure that it compares well against your competitors, right? Like obviously someone selling Amazon, like competition is a huge thing. So testing their product concept against like the category leader is really important. And then obviously once our listing is about to go live, like, is this the right main image to use? Is this the right title? Mm. Are these the right description bullet points? So there's a lot of things that you can test. 
before putting uh, putting something live, and those will all go to help your click through rates and your conversion rates, and and just resonate better with your potential audience. I love that. And so I'm trying to imagine. So you 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 see the authors, and then you're like, okay, now all these other use cases start cropping up, and then now you got the the people that are selling on Amazon, you got the yep. people that are doing gaming, and now it's just like you went from hey, we can give feedback to everything, and people not knowing what to do with it to, okay, here's authors. And then all these people start showing up as far as what they can use right. this for. So how did you start to decide what to spend your attention and focus on once you started seeing all these options start cropping up? Yeah. Um, so we definitely started moving our attention from authors to e-commerce just because the opportunity was so much larger there. And I think the, sure. the use case resonates um, a little more clearly and more frequently because I think yeah, I with authors- yeah, exactly. The volume, right? Like the authors, maybe they're publishing a book per year if if they're prolific, but probably even <laughs> less frequent. Um, but obviously with people selling on Amazon, they're just selling multiple products um, and they're iterating on that throughout the year. So I think that's the, the best use case for us. Um, so we started marketing to them. There's, there's a little bit easier marketing channels too. Like we can help uh, people who are doing e-courses. We can, um, we can market directly to them through conferences and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the gaming community is a little bit tougher because it is a, um, there are larger corporations. There's a little more, more of a B2B sales, uh, approach that needs to be taken. But I think with, uh, e-commerce, it's a little bit more direct sales to actual individuals who are doing the poll. So it's, it's a little bit different models. Um, so we are, we are spending attention on both, but I would say that we are more focused on e-commerce at the moment. Got it. Makes sense. So another thing that I, I thought would be really interesting to ask you is, I mean, the whole platform is built on asking for feedback, right? Yeah. And there's a good way to ask for feedback and a bad way to ask for feedback. And so, you know, asking the wrong question, could you actually lead you down to having terrible results? And I think you have a really unique perspective of having all this data on your users and how they're using the platform sure. as to how to ask for feedback appropriately. So it may seem like a very basic question, but like, how do you ask for feedback? <laughs> yeah, we... we we tend to advise people to be very um, non-specific, I guess. So it's kind of like, which product would you buy? Like, just just keep it very simple. Which book would you buy? Or you could give it some context, like which, if you were trying to buy a romance novel, like which book would you buy? Sure, that's that's fine to give it some context. But I think what some people tend to do, uh, which leads them astray, is they, they lead the question. Um, yes. they, they may have some bias in it, or they may try to uh, double barrel it, which is, They'll, they'll try to ask a couple things in the question. And then mm. and then people are confused as to what, what am I trying to answer here? And you're going to get muddled responses. And so uh, we, have a, we have a long blog post about <laughs> all these pitfalls of, of question writing. And so we, we do try to guide them um, both with that blog post. And we're trying to have a little bit more templated approach to it now. So if we know that you're testing you know, main images, we could we'll help you set up a question that automatically says, like, which image would you click on? if you're buying a teapot or something like that, right? So yeah. we know that's a very unbiased question. Um, and uh, that's that's how we try to recommend it. The, the other mistake a lot of people make is that they're testing too many variations at once. And so what I mean by that is they're changing too many things in their options. So uh, an example would be if you're testing uh, titles and covers, and so you have uh, you have one cover of a certain design mm -hmm. and a title, and then a completely different cover design and a different title. And it's, well, you should keep, you, it's a scientific method, right? You, you got to right. keep things locked and just change one thing at a time. So use the same cover design, change the titles or vice versa. And so um, 
a lot of people think like, oh, I'm just going to get more bang for my buck. I'm just going to change a bunch of things. But then you're not, no, you don't know. Like what, what was it? Like there are explanations, but it's, it's a much better approach to kind of systematically test uh, one change at a time. Spoken like a true engineer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that. And you know, it's actually, it's actually a good segue into, I, I wasn't even planning on asking this, but you know, as an engineer, you have this perspective of building business that does have to be very methodical. It's just the way that yeah. you naturally approach business. And obviously by your recent explanation of how to actually just pick a specific test is like that that's grounded in, you know, engineering principles that I'm sure you're yeah. using in your quote unquote past life. So for, for, uh, entrepreneurs that are maybe just getting started, what are, what are some of the biggest insights that you might have as an engineer and like how you've built your business as far as being able to approach specific problems and, and solve them and then move forward? Do you have any, I know it's kind of a general, but like, yeah, any, any advice as an engineer uh, entrepreneur? <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, I think as, as an engineer, you, you typically do want to automate processize things. Um, but I think the, uh, I think the the thing the mistake that too many people make is they they try to process size or automate things too early in the process. Yes. Yep. Um, and so what we always try to advise our team and what we try to do is like, you know, there's this concept of like do things that don't scale, right? Yes. Yep. And very early, like maybe you think that this is gonna be really awesome and we're gonna find this automated process and a VA is gonna do it for me, but like you gotta do it yourself. Like and it, yes. it may suck because it's like really manual, like you're emailing people and, and you're following up with them directly. But until you know it works, like there's no point in, in automating it. So I think that actually goes against like an engineering uh, mindset where you just want to like, oh, I just want to like offshore this and like systemize it. But like, no, you got to do it yourself first. And we advise our team to do that as well. Like you may not think this is going to scale and it probably doesn't scale. But until you prove that this process works and we've refined it, then we'll automate it. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think every entrepreneur has ha had the experience of trying to automate something and then you yeah. automate something that doesn't work. And then it's just like, what the hell did I just waste all this time, <laughs> energy and effort on? Just because I just like, I built this sweet Zapier automation that did nothing because yeah. it broke after the first time I used it. <laughs> so, exactly. so, so, okay. So let's, let's go dive deeper a little bit into this. So you say you, you recommend do things that don't scale hundred percent agree with that. You're doing it for yourself. You, I, I think I came across in my research too, that you, um, I forgot where I put it on my notes here, but like you, you're an automation nerd and you did just kind of mention that. So like, yeah. at what point do you decide to automate something and what do you think are the best things to lever to automate in a business without removing yourself entirely and doing automation the wrong way? Yeah. I mean, I look at automation as a uh, two different uh, approaches. Obviously there's the ways like Zapier or code automation where you're, you're actually having the computers automate it, but there's also automating through um, like outsourcing it to your team or to, to, a, to a VA and, and just having a really good SOP for them to follow uh, some kind of process like that. So um, I would say that, you know, if, if you, when you're starting with a process and you've got a defined output, you just need to see if like, if it's hitting that in a, in a consistent manner. And that's, that's how we decide when to, when to start automating things. I think we tend to start by automating the SOP first. So like, all right, I've, I've figured it out myself. I'm going to write up the directions. I'm going to have someone else do it now, see if they can repeat it. And then I'm going to start looking for opportunities to automate the work that they're doing to make them even more efficient. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a, a two-step process where I try to automate it manually, so to speak. I guess that this kind of <laughs> sounds weird, but automate it in a manual fashion for someone else. And then I'll automate the um, inefficiencies with, with code. Makes sense. 
Um, yeah. I always just try, I always, as an, as a podcaster, I don't want to assume that people ever know something. So just SOP in case a standard sure, operating yeah. procedure. Um, so, um, the one thing I want to ask here too, is was this something that you always naturally did in growing businesses was creating SOPs? Because I know sometimes it's either like, well, let me just ask it that way. Is that something you always naturally did was to create SOPs? No, no. I mean, I think this was all, uh, it was all learned over the years. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> I think I think all these different approaches are through through trial and error and like yourself like we were automating things uh without without doing them our, ourselves first and and we weren't using proper SOPs in the very beginning and we it was all a mess and so just learning through the community and learning from other podcasts and e-courses and it's, it's all just uh, earned insights as they call it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one thing that, I mean, I, I, for me, SOPs was like an adverse reaction to my previous experiences where it's like, you just can't, you really can't scale an operation or really yeah. any for anything until you have a clearly defined process. And in the past, my past experiences, we tried to do it all via video, but then the video, it's like really hard to re-update after you have yeah. it cemented in a video. So we moved to like written documents. So if you're listening to this and you're like, why the heck are we talking about documentation and SOPs and that kind of stuff? It sounds boring as hell. Um, I mean, really, if you want to free yourself from the business, it's exactly what Justin's talking about is like making sure that you first of all, do it yourself, suck it up <laughs> uh, and then figure out the process that works, figure out if you can create a systemized process so that somebody else can then repeat it and then training other people to continue to improve on that process. Is there anything else that you would kind of add as like maybe a detail that you've learned is, is after you've been documenting and scaling your company? Uh, no, I mean, I think that covers it. I, I even SOP stuff for myself, right? Because I, I think at this point, <laughs> as an entrepreneur, you're you're just involved in so many things and you're going to forget yeah. what your thought process was. Like, why was I doing this? And, and right. you know, what are the steps? And so even when I'm doing stuff, uh, I'll, I'll document it so that I know that when I have to repeat this in six months or, you know, or a year, like I can just follow the steps for myself. And, and maybe when I'm not doing that in the future, like someone else can follow it. So now it just comes natural. Like we use, uh, we use Notion internally. For, sure. for documentation and it makes it really easy just to, you know, move stuff around and, and do this kind of documentation. And we try to encourage everyone to do it for themselves and, and as a way to uh, share with the team. How do you keep the SOPs organized? Is it all within Notion? Yeah, it's all within Notion. Yeah. So it's a mix of uh, text and then every now and then there's images and videos where it can supplement, but yeah, it's primarily text, like you said. Okay. Well, uh, I, I maybe hopefully this isn't boring people to tears talking about documentation so we can kind of wrap this side up with it. But another hack that I've, I've done recently that's helped me with SOPs is like, if you uh, have somebody on your team that can help you, you can record a video of it and then have mm. send the video for them to turn it into a written SOP. It seems kind of mm. redundant, but that's like another, another thing. And then the other important part that I found is like, not only do you have to create a process for creating processes, but how do you then access them? Like, are they mm. easily accessible? Do you have some form of like an index so that you yeah. can click into it? Um, just things, things for people to think about in any stage of business, I think is just how to make sure that you're thinking about things appropriately. So cool. Well, uh, we've, we've went all over the place. We've gone all over the place as far as, uh, your, your experience with menuism with PicFu. um, as far as like companies that do you, do you have any advice for maybe entrepreneurs that are like, maybe they're not using as much feedback as they could, like where, where the best places to get feedback are just since this is the, the world that you deal in, you live in. Yeah. I mean, so the company line is to obviously get feedback at all stages of, of, of your uh, product life cycle. Um, and we, we've been kind of working on this framework for, for a while now, as we've seen how customers use it. But, uh, you know, the product lifecycle has a, n a number of stages and obviously there's like ideation, there's design, there's actual development, there, and there's distribution. And so 
we can actually help at, at any stage. Pickfu, you know, can can itself help. But um, you know, instead of just pitching Pickfu, like we we also just get customer feedback all the time. So we um, you know we kind of take that that philosophy to heart, and we are always open to talk to our customers. So whether you're getting feedback from strangers, like you are, you can do with Pickfu. Um, you should always get feedback from your customers. And so we we have a very open policy of reaching out on, uh, we use Intercom for chat. And so we always have uh, outreach from ourselves and we invite people to schedule calls with us. And we try to connect with our customers as much as possible to gather feedback mm-hmm. um, continuously about the product and, you know, also who they are. Like, you know, what's your job title? Like, where are you learning? Like, what podcasts do you listen to? What Facebook groups are you in? What conferences are you going to? Um, so all this like customer development and customer development is, is its own world, own world of things that, uh, of, of things that you could, uh, research, but we try to perform customer development all the time, uh, whenever we have an opportunity to talk to our, our existing customer base. I love that. And I just want to highlight how important that is to make sure that you're having a dialogue with your customers. Cause yeah. I mean, sometimes it's so easy to lose sight of the people that you're talking to or the people that you're serving. And then yeah. they're the people that your whole company is built around. So making sure that you have processes sure. in place where even, even if you're not in the typical role where you're interfacing with customers that you have that opportunity or you set up opportunities to do that. Um, other thing I wanted to ask too, is I was looking at some of the, the, the people that you've worked with and you have this testimonial from Thrashio. I think that's how they say it. Thris.io. I know that they're really big in the Amazon business acquisition space. Yep. So I, I just, I know sometimes when you acquire a client like that, it's like a pivotal moment in you being able to kind of market <laughs> to a new segment when you have a thought leader, how did you end up acquiring them as a client? Or was that just kind of something that happened naturally? Was there a story behind that? Oh yeah. There's actually a pretty good story there. So, um, well, they, they, they found us to use us. Um, so, you know, they were using us, but we, uh, we were at a conference, uh, in Chicago and we were just kind of roaming the floor and they had a booth. Um, we were talking to someone other, some other booth, uh, of, of some friends that we knew and, uh, John who did the testimonial, he, he walked over and he's like, Hey, Thras, uh, Hey, pick guys. Like we, we love pick And we, we didn't know who Thrasio was at the time. So he introduced himself and he's like, oh, I would love to do a ses- testimonial because it's made such a huge difference in our business. And so <laughs> well, that's what we- If you're offering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so we we kind of dug into Thrashy and we're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, this is a really cool business. And uh, the fact that they were able to get a lot of value out of it was was amazing. So that's kind of where the relationship started. He approached us like on, on the conference floor. Uh, we just had our pick food t-shirts on, just kind of roaming around and <laughs> he found us. Um so yeah, that, that's kind of where it started. And, you know, we were already in the e-commerce space, but uh, definitely there's a lot of validation to having kind of the biggest acquirer of FBA businesses using PickFu um, on all their different brands. And so, you know, the case study that we had was a pet deodorizer that they had purchased. You know, it was doing like a million, um, it was doing like around a million dollars, I think, in, in revenue. And, uh, you know, they had used PickFu to completely rebrand it and it, it skyrocketed up. I think it's, you know, doing like $30 million a year now, wow. um, just from rebranding and being able to like make new product lines off that new design and everything. So, uh, it's very fascinating because they, you know, they use it throughout the creative process, uh, like, like we do advice. So, you know, whether it's rebranding or, um, you know, marketing messaging, there's all these different things that they get feedback on. They're very data driven. Cool. Well, that's a, that's a great story. It's, it's funny too. It's like sometimes you acquire those clients, so you have those relationships and they just kind of come out of you 
just doing things the right way, you know, yeah. approaching relationships the right way and being a, a, a good person, a good human. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, those things sure. just kind of come back to you and you don't even have to actively, actively pursue them. So that was a, that was a great story. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to dive into with you as, as a topic is I know in doing my research that you said you are a firm believer in remote work and work life balance. And you talked about how, when you're not navigating LA traffic, you shuttle two kids between school gymnastics and other activities. <laughs> so I'd love to dive into that side of things as somebody that runs PicFu and you got a lot going on. How do you approach work life balance? Do you have any kind of philosophies or insights that you could share with us and being able to manage that? Yeah. I mean, uh, the funny thing is when we started, um, you know, back in 2006, it was, it was kind of the opposite, right? We didn't, we didn't have the dependencies and, and we worked, I, I mean, I even every waking hour, essentially, <laughs> we would actually, we would actually fly back and forth to each other's homes and do like these two week sprints where basically we just like shut out the world and, and just like sit in a room and, and code kind of like, you know, the typical startup lifestyle, right. we would hit Costco first get a bunch of, uh, get a bunch of food and just like, you know, throw the windows up, put, yeah, put a yeah, sign it was on like, the door. It was like Mountain Dew and frozen chicken basically. So, <laughs> um, I, I think we burned out a little bit and we, we kind of learned the hard way that, man, this is a really long journey. Uh, after the first couple of years, like, all right, well, you know, we're not, <laughs> we haven't sold the company yet. So we need to find a more sustainable pace. And yeah, I had gotten married and then, you know, John was starting to settle down as well. So I think it was, a it was a learned thing that we needed work-life balance. And I think once we did discover it, then it was uh, even more valuable. So, you know, it's, it's funny because people always ask us like, would you trade, would you trade this pathway for like a higher paying job? And it's like, no, like we have this amazing balance. And I think once you realize it, um, once you do this self-reflection and realize that when you're on your, when you're um, working virtually and you're kind of your own boss and, then you have this flexibility to uh, to be there for your kids or your family, and you know I get to drive my kids to school. I get to pick them up, and and just being able to do that and have the flexibility is is so priceless. Um, I know that more people are able to do that now that it's remote. Although I guess they're not going to school, and we're not <laughs> we're not going to school at this time. But right. but you know even being here for them during the day, it's uh, you know it's hard to put a price on like oh well. Sure, like maybe I could have worked at Google or whatever, some other big tech company, but but then I would be stuck in an office all the time and I wouldn't be able to, you know, do these things with my kids. So yeah, I I, I think after after feeling the benefit uh for ourselves, we really want that for our team. And that's why we decided mm-hmm. to, as we brought people on to uh consciously make it remote and virtual first. And so we explicitly recruit in in uh cities and, and countries like that is around the world. So like when we posted some jobs early last year, we, we did some in Canada and, and Nashville and, and Oregon, like wherever we were just like picking random cities. Like we don't want it near where we are. We just want people all over the place to, to force the company to have a culture of a virtual first. Mm. How do you handle like developing relationships and kind of that component of team building when you're remote? Cause I know that's like something that can be difficult and tried it in the past. And sometimes it's kind of awkward if you don't do it the right way. And so how, how do you foster good communication and teamwork in a remote team? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's difficult. Like we, we try to have as many communication means as possible. We, we use Slack, we recommend people use loom. So for looms a way to do, uh, asynchronous recorded videos. And that's a, a nice way to, to see someone's face and hear their voice uh, while getting an asynchronous update. And since since the team is in different time zones, like we have to push asynchronous uh, first, mm. right? Like you can't always assume that we can get on meetings to, 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 uh, 
to get on the same page. So we do push uh, Slack and Loom a lot, uh, but we we do our team building. We try to have team building like every month where we do an activity together and maybe it's just playing an online game or some kind of virtual happy hour. Uh, we do a weekly stand-up call, which has no structure, but just if you can make it, like hop in for 30 minutes. I work, we're kind of just doing updates for the week. Um, so we try to foster it that way. Um, we also do this thing called uh, donuts, which is kind of a... Um, um, random one-on-ones with each other. So just as a way to replicate like the coffee that you might grab. Um, so just forcing, forcing conversations between, uh, you know, different team members. Cause you know, not everyone would work together, um, uh, depending on their role. So this, this forces everyone to have a little conversation and connect on a non-work way. Yeah. It's funny. That reminds me of, and what was the name of the book I read? It's called The Click Moment. And I think it was Pixar. Steve Jobs talked about mm. how one of the ways that he engineered the, or wanted the building engineered. And I could be completely off on this, but it was like, he wanted to make sure that the people that wouldn't normally be having conversations were having conversations because it's like, typically the engineers are there, the animators yes. are here and like yeah. everybody's kind of siloed, but he intentionally created the atrium and the way that the, the, you know, the the cafeteria and all that stuff was built so that you had to mingle amongst different yeah. kind of uh, depend uh, different areas of the business. So it just created conversations and insights that normally wouldn't happen if you hadn't done that. Yeah, yeah, and so that's I think that's that's the benefit of forcing some of these one on one conversations, and it just gets some cross pollination when obviously you know you wouldn't have random people hopping into other like functional meetings, but if you're if you're just having a random coffee, then yeah, they can talk about those kinds of things. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate all your feedback on, on feedback and, and it's really cool hearing your story. Is there any, I haven't asked this question yet, but I know this is a powerful question that people ask. Is there any question that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? (laughs) Uh, not off the top of my head. I wish I had thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well then we can, we can go, we can go somewhere uh, easier than that. So if you could kind of put um, the, the conversation on a bumper sticker and like based on your experience and like, you know, what, what would you tell yourself kind of a thing? So if you could kind of, if people could only take away one thing, it was kind of on a bumper sticker, what would you want people to understand in building their businesses and moving forward? Uh, Let's see. Patience and persistence, I think is the, um, is a thing that we've always had to remind ourselves. I think as entrepreneurs, you're, it's like you do something and then you're expecting an immediate outcome, right? Because you've, you've poured mm-hmm. a lot of effort into whatever it is. Maybe, maybe it's launching your podcast or maybe it's adding a new feature to your software. And the minute you turn it live, you're just like, you're waiting there, right? You're like looking at the statue, like this is, this is going to be so awesome. And obviously like it, nothing happens overnight like that. Like people, right. people, uh, people process things in their own time and even your own customers, right? They're not, they're not, even if you send an email, they're not just going to like, Oh, I got to rush back and like, check this out. Like they kind of internalize things at their own pace and, and the market is even slower. So, um, in the very beginning, we frustrated ourselves a lot. Just always thinking that like, Oh, if we push something live and it doesn't immediately hit, like it's a failure. And I think, you have to change to a mindset of like, okay, you got, you have to have patience to allow things to marinate. And you also have the persistence to just kind of um, know that you're working on the right things in the right direction. And it's the, it's the accumulation of all those small steps. It's like habit building, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. just do everything at once. You have to just know that if I work out a few, you know, a few times a week, or if I, if I, I read a little bit every single day, like those things build on each other. And that's the same for building a business. Like it's just a, a huge accumulation of very small decisions that um, you have a thesis is in the right direction. And 
you just have to keep at it uh, and it may take, you know, 15 years or, <laughs> or maybe it may be faster for some, but, um, that that's, that's the best lesson I can give is that like, you can't just, you can't rush it. You can't force it to be like, Oh, I'm just going to do this one thing. And it's, it's going to knock it out of the park in like, you know, 30 days. So, um, that's my recommendation. I love that. And I, I want to highlight that too, because I think as entrepreneurs, it's really easy to get stuck on focusing on outcomes, right? Like yeah. you want, you have these business goals and you kind of place your happiness and your sense of self-worth on these outcomes. And what I've yeah. learned through talking to so many entrepreneurs is that they're, they're like, you know, I, even when I achieved that goal, I look back and I realize that the times that were, I really missed were like the days when I was going through it, but then it's kind of contradictory yeah. <laughs> because it's like, you're going through it and you hate it and you're pissed off and you're like, why the heck am I not getting the outcome. So true happiness from, from at least my philosophy on it is that focusing on process, not outcome, being process focused and being happy with the moment. And if things aren't turning out, it's the way it's supposed to, and you're supposed to learn from it. And the other thing that my mentor Jules, who's been on this show says is like, and I, I'm going to screw up the exact data on this, but bamboo, the way bamboo grows, it takes years to break the surface, but then it breaks the surface and then just, it just grows exponentially the second that it sees daylight. And so, you know, it's really interesting to look at natural things, the way things happen in nature, because like we expect things to be so fast and we're on our phones all the time. We want instant gratification, yeah. but really what you said there was just so powerful because really that's you know, just understanding that it's in the process, not in the outcome and being persistent and patient over time is absolutely powerful. So thanks so yeah. much for sharing that. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, where, and I know we talked about pick food, but where can people find out more about what you have going on and follow your journey? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you can obviously reach me at pick food. You could email me justin at pick food.com P I C K F U.com. Uh, find me on Twitter, uh, two bit, Justin T W O B I T Justin, um, or on LinkedIn. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you, Justin, so much for coming on. This has been a blast and I'm sure everybody appreciated your insights and feedback and all the other stuff that we dove into today. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Hey, it's Brandon here again. And I have a quick favor to ask before you head off. And that is if you are listening to my voice right now, and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.